Investable Universe is about thematic topics in real assets investing. This is what we mean by the global market of things, real estate, infrastructure, land, energy, and other commodities that have historically been viewed as boring old income investments. But take a look at the shifts underway in these asset classes, from industry disruptors to new investors to emerging markets to geopolitics, and you'll find these assets are anything but dull. We'll talk about private equity, venture capital, corporate VC, sovereign wealth funds, listed markets, crazy startups, some old guard investment firms, some maverick entrepreneurs, and some paradigm-changing technologies. One thing is certain, no corner of the global market of things will be left untouched by the changes happening right now, and that's what we'll be talking about on this podcast. It's all part of our expanding investable universe, and maybe it'll be part of yours too. We're going to talk this week about the transformative potential of lithium-ion battery technology in energy, utilities, and manufacturing. It's already a multi-billion dollar global industry, and we'll be focusing on one venture capital-funded enterprise that's making major inroads in making this transition happen. For this, we're going to talk to one of the world's leading experts and innovators in battery architecture, Dr. Christina Lampe-Ordenud. She is a doctor of inorganic chemistry, the former CEO of Boston Power, a former executive at the world's largest hedge fund, Bridgewater Associates, and since 2012, the founder and CEO of Cadenza Innovation, which produces a patented supercell lithium-ion battery for use in electric vehicles, utilities, and consumer electronics. She is a member of the Royal Swedish Academy of Science and has been named a two-time technology pioneer by the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, where just a few weeks ago, she discussed the sustainability imperative and how investments in lithium-ion battery technology can help bring this paradigm forward. Today, we'll talk about the technology, what it means for sustainable energy, and how the industry can move forward in an era of global trade tensions and supply chain decoupling between East and West. Thank you, Dr. Lampa Onoru, for joining Investable Universe today. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. Great. So first, can we begin with a very basic kindergarten-level recap of the lithium-ion batteries evolution since the 1970s? For sure. So everybody knows what a battery is um, intuitively. Um, mm -hmm. You have uh, lead-acid batteries in your traditional fossil fuel car. You've had batteries in your cell phones. Those are all lithium-ion. And um, you have probably driven an electric car now, which is also lithium-ion. So mm -hmm. that type of technology was invented in the mid-70s, um, both in the United States and Europe um, through groups that were either tied to the big telecom uh, notably in the United States, uh, the Bell Labs uh, mm -hmm. ecosystem, and lots of academies that work together to facilitate the understanding. As you know, the Nobel Prize was uh, just awarded to lithium-ion knowledge bearers in um, two Americans, John Goodenough and Stan Whittingham, mm -hmm. both Americans here, uh, who have participated on the material side. The application took uh, a lot of speed as the mobility era entered into portable electronics. Mm -hmm. And it was really pioneered commercially by Sony in 1991. Sony, uh, of course, based in Tokyo, Japan at the time, with a lot of futuristic visions that uh, inspired the whole Japanese uh, electronics uh, giant ecosystem into experimenting with what phone and data and laptops and, and smart intelligence integration and kind of having global information and knowledge at your fingertips, what that really meant. And they mm -hmm. drove that innovation and batteries were critical. Uh, the Koreans came very quickly on board through Samsung and LG. And then the Chinese came in uh, with a massive 
massive investment uh, proposition uh, backed by strategic government incentives mm-hmm. to become a player. And um, they also, from China, drove a lot of the EV or e-mobility mm-hmm. initiatives and is today uh, one of the leading, if not the leading market uh, in what uh, that kind of new era of electric transport means. So cars, buses, um, every type of, of transport. Uh, the third new era that we are just emerging into is the transformation of electricity. Mm-hmm. So grid markets, the use of electricity, and of course, also tagging on is the industrial type of market specialty applications. Wow. So what is the estimated total addressable market size for lithium-ion battery technology today, globally? Um, so it varies a little bit uh, with what horizon you look at. Mm-hmm. Um, so the most conservative uh, analyst houses are basically projecting for 2025 $100 billion just for the lithium-ion mm-hmm. segment. Um, and uh, when you go out to 2030, the variations are from any way of hundreds of billions to um, many, many hundreds of billions. Mm-hmm. So th- there is uh, an enormous appetite for this technology. And being in the industry, it's kind of fun to be a little bit of uh, a, a kind of an analyst player mm-hmm. as well and a, kind of playing in this macroeconomics because mm-hmm. From the inside of the industry, we see that the analysts, the pure analyst community, are missing this market uh, very extensively, actually. Uh And um, the opportunities are just so large. When you think of a cell phone Mm -hmm. being a small battery and you take that to a car, so that's Mm -hmm. a thousand X or maybe more. And then you take it into grid applications, so that's another thousand X or more. The implications of lithium-ion are just... uh, unbelievably uh, interesting and uh, right there just before us. So if you look at lithium ion just as a as a separate industry, is it do you view it as a cyclical industry or do you see this as a source of resilient demand? I mean, when you think about maybe a, an application in utilities, maybe that would be sort of countercyclically oriented as opposed to consumer electronics which are maybe which is maybe more economically sensitive. Oh, interesting. So if we take it back one step and we look at uh, the double A batteries, the ones that you used in your childhood for powering your flashlights and stuff, mm-hmm. that market actually is flat. And wow. it does not depend at all on economic up or downturns. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are forecasting similar behaviors for smartphones and laptops. We're kind of getting to a common understanding of what those markets mean. Mm-hmm. So quite resilient, actually, in economic terms. EVs are right now very sensitive to uh, quarter-over-quarter uptake, but the long-term prospect is no question. If you've ever had an electric car, you will probably never go back. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are already at the cost point without having scaled the industry significantly, where if you own the car for four to six years, it is already a a better economic proposition, Mm -hmm. and that number is coming down. So, there's no discussion, I think, amongst the people in the industry that uh, these are megatrends that will be extremely difficult to stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, as any new market is developing, there is sensitivity to global economy. Mm-hmm. So Cadenza Innovation, your firm, uh, you've been around since 2012. Your value op- uh, proposition is a safer, more reliable lithium-ion battery. Uh, tell me, what, what, is the, what is the game changer at Cadenza? Yeah, thank you. So... 
the idea that you could have a Lego block of energy Mm -hmm. where these 20 years of learnings from the industry is put to use on the inside Mm -hmm. with an eye to these large applications. So think electric cars and grid with all the lessons learned from portable power and early onset of electrification of basically transport. Mm -hmm. And when that is put together, we have simplified the architecture of packaging energy Mm -hmm. and storing that. So you have multiple components that have dual use. You have multiple... um, elements of the architecture of the cell that speaks to safety specifically. And because it's so safe, Mm -hmm. it becomes really cost effective because you need not at all to engineer around this system. Mm -hmm. So specifically, this is uh, the only cell potentially that you could safely put below your bed and go to sleep and sleep well. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful piece of technology where you have very expensive buildings or areas where you really cannot initiate issues. Mm -hmm. So we're not saying that we can drive the cost point to zero failures, Mm -hmm. but the failures are maintenance-like, not Mm -hmm. catastrophic. And And that to me is a step change. So and when you talk about the safety issues with lithium-ion batteries, the the concern is that it's going to catch on fire. So it's not really just a, right, it's not not just a a fact, you know, the prospect of the battery not working, it's that it might actually combust. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, that is, that is correct. And the, and the question then is, um, is that, uh, is that a fair comparison? So if you compare it to fossil fuel, so, you know, there are 150,000 car fires in the United States alone mm-hmm. per year. We don't want to talk about those. Mm-hmm. But if you have one EV, we're really concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, and the EV industry has done a good job of safeguarding around the battery. Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying is that is great. And that shows resilience in the industry to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what Kidenza is offering is you don't have to safeguard. It's already part of the package, which simplifies and drives down cost, mm-hmm. ultimately. And so it's the gift of some battery nerds and, you know, people who actually know this market. Battery nerds. Giving. <laughs> this is yeah. a rising segment. You knew a Lego block of entities that you uh-huh. can configure any way you like. Uh-huh. And you can trust it. And here's the specification. Here's the power. Here's the energy. Here's the cost. Here's how you hook them together. And and we'll be involved as you think about this, mm-hmm. because we really know batteries, but you totally know your application better. And there, the response from the market on that concept has been really, really fun for us. Wow. That's, so let's get back to use cases. I know that we've talked a little about the, the specialty products market for lithium-ion batteries. There's uh, the electric vehicle market, uh, which is which has been pushed uh, very aggressively in China, as well as the uh, energy storage market for developed as well as developing markets. What do you see as the fastest growing use case or market segment for this type of battery? Uh, the fastest growing market uh, overall will be electric vehicles because it's a little further ahead of um, the grid market mm-hmm. in general. Um, and the reason is that the electric vehicle is piggybacking, of course, of 100 years of automotive drive. Mm-hmm. And early EVs, as I'm sure you know, were more or less the same type of car where we changed the drivetrain and instead of having gasoline or diesel being the fuel, we just put in batteries. Mm-hmm. Today, 
TVs are built a little bit like a skateboard. You stack up the batteries at the bottom of the skateboard and then you build a little room to sit in. And then we're kind of dabbling right now whether we should drive it or a computer should drive it for us. But it's this idea that you have a room that moves. Mm-hmm. And the battery is part of anchoring the weight and it is the fuel. And it's frankly necessary to have this autonomous drive and assisted drive and all the electronics that we are starting to really like, sensors and alerts. And mm-hmm. um, so that is already so far along in development. Mm-hmm. So from a market takeoff, it already has taken off. Mm-hmm. Um, we have so many successful cases. The U.S. reached a million uh, EVs. Um, over a year ago. So that is kind of no longer a new kind of market in that it's exploratory. It -hmm. is already entering into growth. And I'm sure you see uh, many of the statements, not only from U.S. manufacturers, but uh, German and European manufacturers, of course, many of the Asian manufacturers. In fact, you could say the tipping point happened already in Mm -hmm. 2009, where it was the first auto show Rebecca, where if you did not announce an electric vehicle mm-hmm. in the Paris Auto Show in 2009, you were actually not deemed a player. So that's how long it takes from first initial market excitement mm-hmm. to actually having this happen. So that's by far the most uh, developed high growth. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's possible that the grid market uh, or anything tied to electricity will uh, by far outperform the electric vehicle market. And the reason is, of course, in one part, the very, very real threat of climate change Mm -hmm. and the need to think about the energy transition differently. And because the the volume of um, either carbon that we burn or carbon that we don't burn, and the impact of that is so large, Mm that there may be a real preference to put energy storage, which incidentally both chaperones lower greenhouse gas emissions from traditional fossil fuel type generation, mm-hmm. but also enable sustainable solar, wind, geothermal to be basically better and more cost effective. So there is a, a real transition that we're going through right now. Mm-hmm. So apropos of the, you know, obviously climate change is a is a is an integrated global issue, another integrated global issue that's very much uh, in the headlines at the moment as we as we record this is the supply the global supply chain. Uh, right now we're in the midst of very widespread concern about the economic effects of the coronavirus outbreak. That's really yet to be quantified, but there's a lot of concern about it in in markets and in in the broader economy. And once that's over with, so to speak, uh, hopefully we'll be, the the, the world will be physically healthier, but we'll be probably back to to talking about trade tariffs, and at least under the current U.S. administration, increasingly protectionist trade policy. Uh, Do you see is that the lithium-ion battery market is overly dependent on China as an end market or as a supply chain component? Um, do, or do you think maybe that rethinking our global supply, supply chain exposures uh, presents an opportunity to build capacity elsewhere in the world? Yeah. So I I am an entrepreneur and a market global market shaper and a problem solver. So mm-hmm. I don't particularly care for the constraints when you have really large problems. And you would say the global economy, uh, everybody benefits if it's reasonably good mm-hmm. and very few benefit if it's not. Uh, if climate change hits the human race really hard, there are no winners. So mm-hmm. to me, 
the quicker we can get away from being afraid and uh, trying to find win-win opportunities, mm-hmm. the better off we are as, as just people alive today. I am, of course, uh, very aware of the issues that have stemmed from unfair trade and, frankly, have been a proponent of those as well. I've traveled both with the European government and the U.S. government in the past on, on both trade missions and negotiations of IPR rights and CSR rights and mm-hmm. human rights and all those things that um, we care about. And the opportunity, I think, is engagement. It's not really closing down the borders. Mm-hmm. It is to be part of those. So where we think we know better or we have different experiences, uh, dialogue wins in my mind all the time. And today we have, um, of course, from the U.S. side, we have elected to move a lot of the manufacturing offshore. And it's a little bit, uh, of course, the result of the policy that has been in place at the time when those decisions were made. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, it is a reflection of the economic incentives that existed at the time when those decisions were made. And then maybe now we regret some of those. And I think there is enormous opportunity to swing that back into a way where you have not a sole dependence on China or Asia for manufacturing, Mm -hmm. but you bring some of that home. And there are some benefits where you have perhaps final manufacturing coming back a little faster than the whole global supply chain. Um, I think in principle, it would be fine if we said over the next 10 years, here's how we see the vision for our country or for the global economy. Mm-hmm. That is easy to navigate. Um, the on-off tariffs are very, very difficult to navigate because people re- become reactionary instead of strategic. Partnerships become uh, potentially um, not only hostile but aggressive, mm-hmm. which doesn't really support global trade in general. Mm-hmm. So in the spirit of partnerships and collaborative thinking, uh, Cadenza has had a number of high-profile partnerships with uh, with different companies. Uh, ABB is one that stands out. Can you talk about some of your signature partnerships and, and what your, batter- your lithium-ion battery innovation has enabled these companies to do? Yeah, absolutely. And um, this is something that we're very proud of. So as, as you know, we don't carry a super high media profile. Mm-hmm. But if you're in this industry you probably have heard of members of this team. Mm -hmm. And the reason is we have a long track record of being intrigued by new paradigms and we we have seen them relatively early. So we've had a little bit more time maybe than main markets to think about solutions for those. Mm -hmm. And then this team carries a high degree of humility and actually likes collaborating with others. Mm -hmm. So we have a track record on that as well. Mm -hmm. So when we came up with this crazy idea for Cadenza to say, we're going to increase safety, increase performance, and decrease cost, all three at the same time, Mm -hmm. most of the industry reacted. It's like, oh, that's so nice. That's just not possible. You know that. Uh, but we were given the opportunity to explore it with um, the DOE, actually the U.S. Department of Energy under mm-hmm. the ARPA-E arm, who said, wait a minute, these guys are right. Mm-hmm. This is transformation for our country potentially, and it could transform how we view energy going forward. Mm-hmm. Let's give them a chance. So we got a small grant and it worked. And mm-hmm. what happened was, we had to find strategic partners. 
And for that, we got Fiat Chrysler into the fold. And, you know, it was a big celebration when in 2018, we had a successful demonstration in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Great. And on the heels of that, uh, DOE has been, um, I would say, it's tough to operate uh, government contracts when you're a small entity because it's a little bit of overhead and registration and mm-hmm. just a lot of reports that have to be generated. But we deemed it was uh, very, very valuable because if the reports are true, DOE can potentially open new doors. In mm-hmm. fact, it does happen. So the United States uh, Department of Energy was very strategic in how they thought of, of partners and in the discussions, both on the federal level and on state levels, there were a lot of collaborations, one of which was in New York State. Mm-hmm. And New York got a lot of benefits from the federal government and pushed their own agenda forward. And there were council meetings and Kidanza, uh was highlighted on some of the summits that RPAE hosted where we were uh, basically showcased by the RPAE team. And then New York basically launched a paper study to see what would it mean if Cadenza's technology would come into play? What Mm -hmm. would it mean for the state? And that paper study was uh, very, very successful. And they demonstrated very, very quickly that uh, in multiple areas where the electricity congestion and the charges are really, really high, battery storage would help immediately. Mm -hmm. And with the costs that we projected, they said, uh, this is a no-brainer. We can afford it. It would help offset investments. It is just an economic decision. And then we were put under scrutiny. And this is the program that is going into live demonstrations this summer, together with ABB mm-hmm. uh, at NIFA, the New York Power Authority, which is, by the way, the largest public utility in the United States. Oh wow! And they control the hydro resources, the so Niagara Falls, and a few others going into New York City. Mm-hmm. So. At their headquarters in White Plains this summer, we're launching uh, a public demonstration to, I I think, both enable the general public to understand what does it mean when you do peak shaving? How does the battery interact with the existing infrastructure? Uh, Why can a state like New York say we want energy storage and what does that mean? So Mm -hmm. we're trying to do well and do good in this one to actually share some of the lessons learned. And then, of course, it's it's super fun to be put through this level of scrutiny where the the people that are on the inside of this program said, it sounds really good, show me. So Mm -hmm. several of our partners have audited some of the very, very tough testing and uh, the results have been amazing to the tune of when we do. (laughs) They're trying to blow up ourselves and they just don't blow up or they're trying to put them into fires and the gas generated from the test is just not even enough reach the detection limit of the equipment, things like that. Mm -hmm. So those are wonderful stories that are now inside the ecosystem. And what we did, uh, coming back to partnerships, is we we invited these very technically astute and uh, large companies to have a seat at the table. And Mm -hmm. we knew that they would likely be very critical but we also knew we had a lot of data on our feet. And for them to witness the successes of these trials, mm-hmm. um, to have the simultaneous backing of uh, basically willing government-tied partners mm-hmm. has been a really interesting journey. And I think this is where the Kidanza team shines. Mm-hmm. We are content providers. We're strategic. And we 
expert mostly works with others. You know, it's interesting uh, that you you mentioned the 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 unusually fruitful partnership that you've had with the DOE, because I think some of the received wisdom uh, when you're an innovator on the U.S. market is that government should get out of the way, that government is not helpful, that what, what you describe is a partnership where government authorities have been remarkably helpful in making introductions within the private sector, and that a government partnership has been sort of one of your first, one of the first stops on your on your way to scaling, rather than the last. Is that have I understood that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. So a few of us had a company together before uh, from which we made uh, enough money to start this company, Mm -hmm. but we did not uh, take out so much money that we could fund it for the entire life of the company. Mm -hmm. And when we went to the traditional venture market, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the venture market basically works like the analyst market. If there is no evidence, they can't really back up their claims. So when Mm -hmm. you have a disruptive idea, Mm -hmm. these programs that are funded by the government are critical, actually, because, of course, there's no data. If you are actually onto an insight, like, I don't know how many people told me, Christina, it's not possible. You can't lower costs and increase performance and also put safety inside. Like, that cannot just be done. Mm -hmm. And DOE said, wait a minute, or I don't know what they said, but something like that must have happened in the meeting. Like, why not? Like, why not give them a chance? Mm-hmm. And that's what they did. And we were able to demonstrate, um, and it actually worked. And we also got enough data through that program. And because we were a super bootstrapped company, we had our own money in it, and we uh, got support from the U.S. government to fund some of the testing. Mm-hmm. The DOE team also inspired the DOD team. So they also did testing, uh, mm-hmm. which was even more fun because they have amazing resources. Yeah, and the Department and they of are Defense, really you mean? And they blowing up stuff. And oh. when they could do it, you know, uh-huh. eyebrows started to get... Uh, yeah, no joke, the, right? <laughs> more than we did. It was fun. Yeah. <laughs> sounds, yeah. It sounds like it, I think. <laughs> yeah. So is there, um, you know, you've talked about the disruptive, obviously high stakes, disruptive technologies. Is there a technological breakthrough or an adoption milestone or some other threshold that will represent a, a real industry milestone for the industry? Is there is there like a moonshot moment and when you hit it, it's just going to blow up? Um, yeah, so that's such an excellent question. I think in some ways, the auto show in 2009 is one of those data points mm-hmm. where the analyst market itself recognized you are not a player if you're not on EVs. Mm-hmm. So that's 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, on the technology side, the fact that we have invented a safe technology could be one of those. But, you know, anytime when you're in, an, in a, trans- a technology transition, mm-hmm. it's very easy to call it 10 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're in it, it could be one of those. The fact that you can now trust it and you can afford it and you can fit it. So the idea that we combine a super simple architecture means we can go into some of the most beautiful buildings in the metropolitan area where you have most of the electricity congestion. Mm-hmm. And we can take a few parking spots and just put batteries there and just lower the impact on greenhouse gas emissions so they get a chance to share their story about being green. Mm-hmm. But we also, more importantly, perhaps lower their OPEC. So cool. Yeah. It's like best of both worlds, right? Yeah. And if enough people do that, that that really means you have hit a home run. Uh-huh. Um, so I think this is this is all the time. There, it's not going to even if this is a big idea and we're very proud of it and mm-hmm. we think it's it could potentially be very helpful. 
it doesn't mean that there is one technology that does this. And this is hence our insight on, on partners. Mm-hmm. You know, without ABB's extraordinary tradition of power quality, their dedication to high quality technology and their very pragmatic way of thinking about these things means the connection to the existing paradigm will also work. Mm-hmm. So there will be no one hero. This is a movement and mm-hmm. there will be a lot of people that have contributed. I mean, the people that sit at DOE have contributed by just allowing this opportunity to have a chance. The people at DOD have contributed because they proved to people that they could blow it up mm-hmm. traditional ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there are lots of heroes. And I think this is actually one of those moments where mm-hmm. I think in our best dreams, we will have a small contribution. But I feel it's moving. Mm-hmm. There are so many good people on this right now. So within what kind of time frame do you see widespread adoption occurring of the of this of the type that you that you've described or that you envision? Is this like a decade within like within the coming decade we're gonna see this? Is it longer term? Yeah, so it's yes, I believe so. Mm-hmm. I think we will look back ten years ago and say, why were we even hesitating in twenty twenty? Because there's still hesitation in public media. Mm-hmm. And from a tech sector, not at all. There's so many ways to solve these problems. And um, the silver lining of these catastrophic events that we're experiencing is it gets into more of a common knowledge that Mm -hmm. the ecosystem against which we are now judging progress, which Mm -hmm. is mostly short-term gains, is no longer working. Mm -hmm. There has to be more uh, consideration going into long-term impact. And long-term is not 100 years, but probably five years. Wow. And with that, you will make very different decisions. So you see it already in the insurance industry. You see it already in how some of the traditional energy investments are valued. You see it in how new governments are evaluating energy choices. So when you have no subsidies to one type of energy and no subsidies to another, you're asking the new technology to basically come in without subsidies into an already subsidized system, mm-hmm. that's tough. And still, sure. I think that's going to happen. But when you go into developing countries where there is just very little infrastructure, mm-hmm. the sustainable solutions win every time. Wow. I was part of my work of World Economic Forum on mm-hmm. some of the African states that are bringing in an expert network, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and the conclusion was reached very, very quickly, uh, how to solve the because it's pure economics in the end. So let's talk more about about uh, the World Economic Forum in Davos. You were just there. Uh, can you talk about mm. what you told the assembled crowd and what was your what was your read on the mood there? Yeah, so it's, it's one of uh, I've been going to Davos for ten years, uh-huh. and wow. um, this year was really interesting. Half of the public addresses um, either talked about solutions to climate change or illustrated the enormous threat. Mm -hmm. That is actually not the dialogue we see in general media. So Mm -hmm. that's interesting just to note. Mm -hmm. Um, My public addresses um, basically talked about here's what a future without action looks like and here is the incredible message which is take action now be a technology leader and make boatloads of money. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that future is available to you and your grandkids. Mm-hmm. So it looks pretty interesting to me. 
Um, in the more private sessions, which is all uh, governed by Chatham House rules, where mm-hmm. um, the World Economic Forum typically sets up um, what they call market shapers or experts with uh, various uh, bodies of policy in both developing and developed countries, mm-hmm. as well as some of the most powerful companies in the world. Um, those sessions are much more pragmatic. Uh-huh. Like you have this concrete situation. Here are the options we see. What do you think? Oh, that's not true. Hmm, how's that? And that is much more of a data-driven discussion. Mm-hmm. So I found it very, very interesting that um, leaving Davos this year, I could find myself, uh, depending on which was the most recent <laughs> meeting, mm-hmm. uh, going home to the simple bread and breakfast where I get to stay, uh-huh. Um is basically either one of the last discussion was so amazing. Like we have made so much progress and it was only two hours Mm -hmm. to we're so going to crush it. This is an amazing opportunity for us. We are going to get out of this within the next 10 years. We're going to make major transitions. Mm -hmm. And I really see the movement. And yet I see from some of the more canned statements on the basically broadcasted stage, Mm -hmm. like no consideration whatsoever. So it's, it's a little bit of both, which I think, again, signifies we're in a transition. The question is only how quickly will it happen. So can you talk a little about your funding model at Cadenza or who who your investors are? Yes, I love my investors. We have uh, we have done something interesting for this company. Yeah. Um, because the venture capital industry was, by and large, uh, pretty skeptical to this idea that you can come in with low-cost, high-performance, and safe technology. That is surprising to uh, me. That's amazing. I... <laughs> yeah, but but it is what happened at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. We actually, um, with the, we had some wealth ourselves, which was helpful, of course. Mm-hmm. But then we were so proud of these early hits because it actually worked. Mm-hmm. That we just talked to people. And we live in the greater New York area, so... Mm-hmm. We met up with some of the cool people that kind of do angel investing and we're like, huh, mm-hmm. oh, you want to invest in this? And they're like, yeah, I could do this either as a kind of, a, um, I don't know, just a, a risky investment or I could do it for the greater good investment. Mm-hmm. Like, how much are you thinking? And I then thought, hmm, what if we do this almost like an angel friendly deal? How do we potentially think about investors? Mm-hmm. And um we decided to put together a security that doesn't necessarily need an exit. Okay. So instead of basically giving every investor an opportunity to come in at a low valuation and then get crushed by the next one as the company traditionally increases traction, mm-hmm. we did something different. We basically said, you own a piece of the company and when the company becomes profitable, we will pay you a dividend according to your ownership share. Mm-hmm. And we are going to be really clear that this is a meritocracy and we have a track record of listening to good ideas. Mm-hmm. If you are happy with that track record and you have good ideas, make sure you feel confident in that mm-hmm. and please surface your ideas. But we're not going to let the decisions for the company get overruled by a fund management time frame that all of a sudden has to exit or something like that. Uh-huh. We also decided that uh, we probably have more than one good idea, that mm-hmm. if we could keep this company private, we have a chance to tackle a few of these, what are normally referred to as intractable problems, mm-hmm. 
uh, energy is one of them, um, you know, the global trade potentially and how we trade some of these commodities is one, mm-hmm. air is one, water is one, like how do you actually solve these problems? Mm-hmm. We, we love these complex problems and we're, since we're still, we're reasonably good at finding other people who know more than we do around what we know. Mm-hmm. Um, we try to find a structure for our investors where we could keep the company private. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean we will never consider an IPO or never consider an acquisition or never consider joint ventures or whatever. Mm-hmm. It just means we don't have to. So we, we can drive the company to be the best possible company. And um, as a result, we have been quite generous to our angel investors. Mm-hmm. And they have been very generous with us. Sure. A fun fact is I actually have, I think it's over 70% women investors. Wow. Over in 70% company. of your investors are women. And this is a woman-owned yeah. company and a woman-founded company. This is a, this is a great story. <laughs> yeah. And I think that people are actually super generous with their networks. Yeah. And it's true. Like most of the introductions are maybe not uh, perfectly timed or even super helpful. Mm-hmm. But some have been super helpful. And since we established at the get I talk to everybody who invests. They, mm-hmm. you know, we, we're very generous with data. We try to send out updates of where the market is. So mm-hmm. recognizing that many of these are also very successful in their lives and they have extended networks. Mm-hmm. But when they go to their next uh, breakfast meeting or briefing or conference, when people say, hey, I've heard these things, that they actually can say, you know what? That's not true. Mm-hmm. In fact, I am part of this company where we are doing X. Whatever. Mm-hmm. So we let the facts actually get a little bit of singing time in front of the microphone and not just the bad news. And that's, that's kind of the can-do attitude of this company that I think has inspired some of the angel investors. Wow. So I was going to ask you, you know, if, if do you have a view on the overall venture capital or private markets landscape? Because I know that the entrance of a lot of uh, let's say, uh, very, very, very wealthy venture capital investors have come in and it's kind of incentivized a movement toward uh, uh, excessive or growth at any cost and, and maybe growth that's not in alignment with the with the broader strategic ob- objectives of, of a company or of a path to profitability. And do you have a, an opinion about the way this kind of funding model has affected research-driven companies like the industry that you're involved in, for example? You've obviously gone, uh, you know, opted for a different funding uh, approach. So I just wondered if you yeah. have a view on that. Yeah, and of course, I have one view with yeah. my very limited experience. Oh. Um, I think there is no industry that is all good and all bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the venture capital industry, if I look at the early 2000s and mid-2000s, got a little ahead of their skis in super fueling, like you say, companies. Mm-hmm. And I remember because I was venture-backed by some very large funds at the time, Mm -hmm. having this discussion um, where they said, we are willing to risk this. And I said, yeah, but I am one of 40 companies. I am not willing to risk this. Mm -hmm. Because we are are beholden to so many stakeholders, and we really genuinely appreciate the knowledge that you bring, experience and networks and the money, of course. Mm -hmm. But you know, you are not God. Like, you do not get to understand and outsmart the customer. You do not get to control the market. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so many considerations. And, and I think many of us who grew successful companies at that time got 
um, a little bit burnt by the aggressive style of investing that mm-hmm. was present then. And I know many of us have actually not gone back to that industry. Um, it could have changed since that. And maybe it's resetting since capital markets tend to mm-hmm. <laughs> get, sure. get punished and incentivized. Yeah, yeah the, the forest fire. So <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And times change. So I don't think it's a, a knock on the industry, but at the time it was very, very aggressive and mm-hmm. it was not helpful to the company. And for that, I know for a fact that um, many of my friends who had companies at the time had similar experiences to mine. Wow. So you talked about a number of of intractable problems that Cadenza would like to address and how your funding model enables you to remain private for as long as you want to in order to solve as many of those problems as you can. So what's next on the horizon for Cadenza, given that uh, you've got you've got free hands? Yeah, so we are now in, I would say, head down working execution mode. Mm-hmm. Um, we have gotten... Um, so much data from so many independent parties that mm-hmm. uh, we're almost on the time right now where this is show and tell time. So most of our team is deployed into helping uh, customers and partners deploying systems. And um, we are trying to find ways to do that in multiple parts of the world. Um, we are licensing this technology to some Parts and we're entertaining uh, potentially of running some of uh, these operations ourselves. So we're at this hyper growth opportunity threshold, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, it's funny because these uncertainties in global markets are both scary and wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, scary because people take longer to make decisions, but wonderful because people are indecisive. So if you have a good idea, and you can speak normal languages, whatever uh-huh. that is. Uh, so not make it too complicated. Uh-huh. Um, there are enormous opportunities, actually. And and this is part of our company now stepping up a little bit to do more outreach for large opportunities. Mm-hmm. And um, for that, I am very, very positive. And the, so if a little company like ours can do this, I would say, it's likely that uh, we are going to grab these economic opportunities because I am 100% sure we're not the only one mm-hmm. that feel that success. Excellent. Well, Christina Lampa Onarud, battery nerd, inorganic chemist, <laughs> technology pioneer, thank you so much for speaking with the podcast today. Thank you. I'm excited to see what's next at Cadenza Innovation. That's all we got for Investable Universe this week. If you liked what you heard, share the link, check out the site at investableuniverse.com or pitch us for future episodes. The address is editor at investableuniverse.com. My name is Rebecca Darst and you'll hear more from me next time.